0: We are continuing to fellowship. I'd just like to welcome you on this beautiful, beautiful Father's Day Sunday morning. You may be seated. So, this morning, as we can, we are going to continue on what we are looking at. We're going to continue on in the book of Luke, and we're going to be starting Luke chapter 14. So, as we go into Luke, we're going to be on Luke chapter 14, verses 1 through 11. We will read these. If you are unfamiliar with the Bible, um, you're a visitor here and you're unfamiliar with the Bible, then you can pull out the Black Pew Bible that is in front of you, and this is going to be pa- found on page 780, no, 873, if I can read my numbers correctly. So that's 873 that's on the right-hand column of the page. Uh, you can follow along starting at the big number 14. So I'm going to read the passage, and then we're going to pray, and then we're going to get to work. This morning, one Sabbath, when he went to dine at the house of a ruler of the Pharisees, they were watching him carefully. And behold, there was a man before whom who had dropsy. And Jesus responded to the lawyers and the Pharisees saying, Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath or not? But they remained silent. Then he took him and healed him and sent him away. And he said to them, which of you, having a son or an ox that has fallen into a well on the Sabbath day, will not immediately pull him out? And they could not reply to these things. Now he, told them a par- now he told a parable to those who were invited, when he noticed how they chose the places of honor, saying to them, When you are invited by someone to a wedding feast, do not sit in a place of honor, lest someone more distinguished than you be invited by him. And he who invited you both will come and say to you, Give up your place to this person. And then you will begin with shame to take the lower place. But when you are invited, go and sit in the lowest place, so that when your host comes, he might say, Friend, move up higher, and then you will be honored in the presence of all who sit at table with you. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. Let's pray. Lord and Father, we just thank you for another opportunity to come into your house and be with your people, sing praises to your name, take the Lord's Supper in recognition of what you gave when you sent your son to die on our behalf. Recognition of what you, Jesus, have done on our behalf by humbling yourself to the point of death, even death on a cross. Lord, we thank you that we can be here. We thank you that we can worship you. We thank you that we can look into your word and hear from you. We are your sheep, and we hear your voice speak to us this morning. Lord, I pray that if there is anything in my notes that is not helpful, blind it from my eyes. And if there is anything that I have neglected to put into my notes, bring it to my mind so that your people, We'll hear your words and be fed by you this morning. Lord, I thank you and I praise you and I pray that you would be with us next half hour to 40 minutes or so. I pray. Amen. So, as we're celebrating Father's Day, I was thinking about some of the things that I enjoy as father. What are the the joys in life and being a father? Well, one of them is introducing my children To things that I enjoyed as a child. You know, I think this is something that we can all relate to, even if we aren't a father. You know, when you enjoy something, you want to introduce that thing to other people. But when you introduce that thing, whatever it is that you enjoy, to someone else, you're running a risk. For example, one of the things that I really enjoy, I've enjoyed in the past, is taking a Jeep or some other off-road vehicle and going off-road. You know there is there is something called overlanding, where you build a, an SUV or you build a truck, and you make you put a rooftop tent on it, or you put um, uh, extra fuel, or you put a kitchen, a cooking setup, you put awning on it, you put all these things. So you can go out and you can do adventuring, is what they call it. And it's I think it's a, a super cool way of exploring an area because you can just go out into the woods, you can park, you can camp, and then you can continue on your way. And it's a a great way of exploring uh, unseen areas without having to come into a hotel or even a campground. One of the things I actually suggested to Jamie is that we take his Toyota Tacoma that he has and my Jeep and we fit them out. And then as an elders retreat, we do like a two day, three or a three day, two night primitive camping trip as for the elders. I can already see Michael is squirming in his seat Well, Jamie wisely reminded me that most of the elders probably wouldn't be as enthusiastic about a kind of trip like this as I would. Then that's one of the risks of introducing something that you enjoy to other people. If they don't like it, they're going to make you miserable doing the thing that you enjoy. Another risk that we run is when we introduce someone to an activity or story or whatever it may be, and they're the one up kind of a person. It's like when you're telling somebody a joke or you're telling somebody a story that you think is awesome and they stop you halfway through and say, oh, I've already heard it. I mean, that's a, such a buzzkill. They can't be happy unless you know how far beneath them that they are or that you are as miserable as they are. know, I think we're going to see some of these same attitudes in the passage before us this morning. These Pharisees really are a piece of work, aren't they? We'll not only see them working together to trap Jesus, but we will see them play the one up game between themselves. And it's really easy to be dismissive of these Pharisees and to think we would never be like that. But we have to keep in mind that these were the cultural elites of their day. These are the upper echelons of society. And as we step into a first-century dinner and try to understand the dynamic that's going on there, I think we'll notice that people haven't changed. You know, the main point of the passage this morning, as I understand it, is this Pride and self promotion bring shame. Look to Jesus, who was perfectly humble and exalted over all. So, pride and self promotion bring shame. So, look to Jesus, who was perfectly humble and exalted over all. So, as we work through this this morning, we're going to have three points that are going to guide us. And the first one is this Pride operates at others' expense. And number two, shame comes through pride. And number three, exaltation comes through humility. So this will take about 40 minutes or so. So, number one, pride operates at the expense of others. Look back at the passage starting in verse one. One Sabbath, when he was, went to dine at the house of a ruler of the Pharisees, they were watching him carefully. And behold, there was a man before him who had dropsy. And Jesus responded to the lawyers and Pharisees, saying, Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath or not? But they remained silent. Then he took him and healed him and sent him away. And he said to them, Which of you, having a son or an ox, that has fallen into a well on a Sabbath day, will not immediately pull him out? And they could not reply to these things. So I mentioned in my introduction, that one of my greatest joys as a father is introducing my children to things that I enjoyed as a kid. Well, one of those things is Looney Tunes. You you have Bugs, you have Daffy, Elmer Fudd, Foghorn Leghorn, Yosemite, Sam, Woody Woodpecker, and of course, everyone's favorite, Wiley Coyote and the Roadrunner. When you read the Gospels, does it not feel like when you're reading the stories of Jesus and the Pharisees that were watching yet another episode of The Roadrunner, and the coyote, they set a trap that they purchased from Acme traps. Jesus thwarts the trap; they're left clutching at air again. Rinse and repeat. It was just two weeks ago. This didn't work out so well for the people who ob- who objected to Jesus. When would these guys learn their lesson? And yet here we are on another Sabbath, and they're watching him carefully, trying to bring their well-conceived trap. I think that the presence of the man was no accident on the host's part. As they come into the table, still selecting their spots, Jesus is placed with the man suffering from dropsy directly in front of him. Dropsy is actually what we would call edema now. I think that this sick man was a plant, and they were watching Jesus carefully to see what he would do in this situation. I mean, look at the passage again. It says that they were watching him carefully, and then it introduces the man by saying, Behold, there was a man before him. This word, behold, is an introduction of something that is new or unusual. It wasn't necessarily unusual to have have uninvited guests at a dinner, but they wouldn't be given a place at the table. And yet we see that this man is conspicuously directly in front of Jesus. Another piece of this argument is that no one speaks in this entire passage except for Jesus. And yet, Luke says, Jesus responded to them. Then after Jesus heals the man, he sends him away. And this word sent means to be released. I think if you put all of these data points together, the picture that begins to emerge is that the ruler of the Pharisees and the other Pharisees that were with him invited Jesus to a Sabbath meal, placed the man with the demon in front of him, and then watched to see if Jesus would break the Sabbath tradition in order to discredit Jesus. But of course, Jesus knows this and responds to the ploy by turning the tables while he heals the sick man. These Pharisees were using the sick man and his pain to trap Jesus. He was just a useful piece to them in their ongoing battle with Jesus. Jesus doesn't fall for the trap. On the contrary, he exposes them and their lack of care and their inconsistencies in their pride. They saw this man as something to be used, less important than their own sons and even their own animals. Jesus saw this man as one created in his own image. And I did want to acknowledge that there is an interesting textual variant in verse 5. And if you're reading out of the KJV, it will say this. And he answered them saying, Which of you having a donkey or an ox fallen into a pit will not straightway pull him out on the Sabbath day? While if you're following along in a modern translation like the ESV, it will say, Which of you having a son or an ox have, that has fallen into a well on the Sabbath day? So what's the difference? Well, simply put, the KJV used a manuscript tradition that was far less robust and did not have access to some of the uh, older, more reliable manuscripts that we have today, thanks to modern archaeology and discovery over the past few hundred years. So does this matter? I'm not sure that it really does make much of a difference either way. Jesus is pointing to them the the, the humanity of the man by comparing him with their own sons. And he's also pointing out their disregard for his humanity by pointing out how they, using him like a pond, were treating him worse than they would treat their own animals. Their pride and desire for self-protection from the growing influence of Jesus turned, turned into abuse of this man. But we would never do that, right? Well, have you ever seen a child use the, one parent against another? Have you cheered for a governor from the Right? who sends a busload of migrants, illegal or otherwise, to the White House or Martha's Vineyard to earn political points? Or have you agreed with the narrative of the woke left as they push the idea that anyone outside of a very narrow identity framework is oppressed and that if you look a certain way, then you are just privileged and a bigot and for which they are the only ones who are awake to this injustice and they are the only ones who have an antidote and we just need to put them in charge of everything. Now I know I'm stepping on toes, and that's mine included. But to be clear, this is not a GOP problem. This is not a Democrat problem. This is not a left problem or a right problem. The propensity to use someone as a political pawn in the game of political chess to score political points is ubiquitous. And to be honest, it's not that much different than what the Pharisees are doing to this man. But this is not a political problem either. This is a human problem. Husbands and wives use their children to score points against each other. And this is, the old, this is as old as the garden. Adam and Eve both sought to protect themselves by transferring blame elsewhere. The serpent used God's very own words in the beauty of the very tree that God had created as a trap to trap Eve and cause her to sin. This problem of group A using the plight of someone to score points against group B or vice versa is not a problem that is indicative of the madness of crowds. Jean-Jacques Rousseau was wrong when he surmised that the crowd or society is what taints the purity of the human person. No, this problem of pride and using others stems not from the collective, but from somewhere closer to home, somewhere far more individual, which is where we will look at in our next point. Point number two. Shamed through pride. Now he told them a parable. This is the next section. To those who were invited, when he noticed how they chose the places of honor, saying to them, when you're invited by someone to a wedding feast, do not sit down in a place of honor. Lest someone more distinguished than you be invited by him, and he who invited you both will come and say to you, give up your place to this person. And then you will begin with shame to take the lower place. But when you are invited, go and sit in the lowest place. And then when your host comes, he will say to you, friend, move up higher. And then you will be honored in the presence of all who sit at table with you. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled. And he who humbles himself will be exalted. So back to the coyote failing miserably to catch the roadrunner and all of his traps being turned against him. Before we move into Jesus' parable at the wedding feast, about the wedding feast, Notice verse 4 and verse 6 again. The Pharisees started so smugly. They thought they had him. They had set a trap for him and were waiting to see what he, if he would take the bait. And they didn't answer his first question. They sat in prideful silence. And then when Jesus turns the table on them, they were left in silent shame. To this point, the Pharisees had been working together to discredit Jesus. In verse 1 it says, they were watching him carefully. And as, as a group, they apparently worked together. But then here in the next section, Jesus reveals to them the source of this kind of collective self-seeking and pride. We find them fighting among themselves for the places of honor. I think I mentioned this earlier, but it seems like the incident of the healing of the man happened before they took their places. Look at what it says. Now he told the parables to those who were invited when he noticed how they took their places, how they took the places of honor, you know, at a first-century Jewish Jewish feast like this or Jewish meal, they would have tables set up in the shape of a U. and the people would all lay on their left side, on their left elbow, and the places of honor were the places that were closest to the center of the U. The center of that U shape was left open for the attendants to serve. So the place of most honor, the place of the host, would be at the center of that U shape. And the place of most honor would be to their right. And this is where we find John at the Last Supper, when he's leaning on Jesus. But what's also interesting is that Judas Iscariot, who betrayed Jesus, was most likely in the place of second-most honor, on the left of the host. We get hints of this, because Peter asked Judas to ask Jesus who would betray him, and Judas and Jesus were in close enough proximity to dip, their, dip into the cup at the same time. So after Jesus rebukes them for their attitude towards the man and using him as a prop, they then begin to jockey for positions. This is what pride and self-promotion do to us. They were unified in their attack against Jesus, only to try to outdo each other in seeking position and influence. Jesus shows them the folly of their ways in this parable. They were out to get what was theirs, but Jesus shows them that they're running the risk of public disgrace by being sent down. They did not learn the lesson of Proverbs 27, 2, which says, Let another praise you and not your own mouth, a stranger and not your own lips. In their pursuit of glory, Jesus warns them of the public isolation and embarrassment that they are bringing on themselves. Pride leads to isolation and loneliness. This is why autocratic and despotic states collapse into anarchy when the dictator dies. Everyone is out for themselves. I think we've all witnessed or been a part of a group project that dissolved into finger-pointing and frustration because people were trying to promote themselves or to get out of work while taking credit. Worst of all, I think we can think of or have been a part of churches that operate this way. The backstabbing and political maneuvering is a blight on the name of Christ. Here's the trick. This self-ascribed honor and self-protection is a very fragile thing. Jesus is warning all of us that, the honor, that honor is not something we can take for ourselves, but is something that is bestowed to us by another. When we, like the Pharisees, try to promote ourselves and to bolster our honor, we're setting ourselves up for shame. We act like the Pharisee in Luke chapter 18 that we'll look at in a few months, who spent his time praying, comparing himself to the publican, the tax collector, who couldn't even lift his head. We curate an image of ourselves and the stories that we tell and the posts that we make and the pictures that we share to hide our insecurities and failures. We are setting ourselves up for shame if we are ever exposed. This is such a lonely way to live. We spend our time hiding our struggles. Because if we show them, we think we will lose standing. We spend money that we don't have to buy cars or houses or things we can't afford, to appear to be in a socioeconomic strata that we're not actually in. And when we do, we increase our stress and we try, as we try to pay the bills. And we place greater risk on ourselves as we leverage more and more of our income and credit standing towards what others think of us. This is a lonely life. And the shame that comes from failure when we lose our job or when sickness comes and we can't pay the bills, is that much greater. We speak and act piously. And we act and we like to post things about our good deeds for the less fortunate. Hashtag blessed. Jesus told people in the Sermon on the Mount at the beginning of Matthew chapter 6, Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them. For then you will have no reward of your Father who is in heaven. Thus, when you give to the needy, sound no trumpet before you, as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets, that they may be praised of others. Truly I say to you, they have received the reward. But when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, so that your giving may be in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. And when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand in the synagogues and at the street corners, that they may be seen of others. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you pray, go to your room and shut the door and pray to your Father who is in secret. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you. All of this boils down to us trying to create and manufacture an identity for the watching world. And the willingness and even demand of walking over others to get there. If we are honest, we've all been there. It is so very hard in a fallen world with such deeply entrenched sin nature to not get wrapped up in what others think. Even those people who like to say things like, I don't care what others think, are actually working to craft an image to others that they don't care what others think. This is a lonely and fragile, shame-filled existence of trying to measure up to a standard of perfection and status that is built on nothing more than the flimsy and fickle opinions of others. It may be that our pride and self-promotion doesn't lead to loss and humbling in this life, but if we have built on a foundation other than Christ, then we will suffer loss at the last day. Now, if anyone builds on a foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, let each one's work become manifest, For the day will disclose it, because it will be revealed by fire, and the fire will test what sort of work each one has done. If the work that anyone has built on the foundation survives, he receives reward. If anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, though he himself will be saved, but only as through fire. That is 1 Corinthians 3, 12-15. For those whose standing is based on self-adulation, Jesus' promises, that a humbling will come it is better to be humble than to be humbled i read a great i heard a great thought the other night and it is often said that the chief sin is pride well it can be inferred from that that the chief mark of holiness is humility this is at the heart of sanctification as the spirit works in us a deeper and more refined image of christ the natural result is a growing abhorrence of sin and some of the most mature people that I know are the ones who see their sins for what they are. I you know it may seem counterintuitive, but the more mature that we are in Christ, the less we think of ourselves, the more that we see the deeper, in the deeper dissatisfaction that we have of our own sin, and thus this gives us a greater humility. I think a mark of immaturity when someone is not easily convicted, it is when somebody is not easily convicted. The more like Christ we become through sanctification, the more unlike him we begin to recognize that we truly are. A mature saint is easily convicted, and an immature saint, not so much. If you're not a Christian, I think this is a great day for you to be here. What we are talking about today is at the very core of everything that is wrong in this world. Name one time in your life when you have witnessed attention-seeking or self-promotion or the dog-eat-dog nature of social interaction and the pursuit of status actually deliver on its promises of more peace and more happiness and more security. The higher and more elaborate we build our lives and self-identity, the more fragile it becomes. Building our identity on the fleeting opinions of others is like the man who built his house on the sand. When trouble and trials came, the house came crumbling down. We need a better way. There is a rock that we can build on. When we look at the next point, Jesus, as we will look at in the next point, Jesus is the one who perfectly humbled himself, even though he was God incarnate. Jesus was exalted. As a result of his humiliation to the point of death, and the overflow of that exaltation is that every knee will bow before him. So whether you, in humble recognition, bow the knee to Jesus as Lord, or in your pride, you refuse to honor him as Lord, at the last judgment, every knee will bow, and that includes yours. Either you will humble yourself now and find your identity in what Christ has done, or he will humble you at the last judgment, but then time will have run out. What Jesus is telling the Pharisees and us in verse 11 is that humbling will happen, whether voluntarily or involuntarily. Turn to Jesus. His humility to the point of death has made a way for us. If we come to God at the last day with our self-built life as our only standing before God, we will suffer the greatest humility and the most profound loss. But if we come resting in the finished work of Christ, we gain exaltation as the reward that Christ earned. And there is no greater exaltation than this. Now, if you have questions, please ask the person that you came with this morning or anyone that looks like a regular around here. And we would love to walk through this book of Luke with you and, you, and help you to see Jesus and his pages. When you boil it all down, there is one, there's only one who actually humbled himself, who actually, Who is there is only one who is exalted on the merits of his own humility. It is to there that we turn on our final point this morning. Exalted through humility. So this is the final section of the final verse. He who humbles himself will be exalted. As we come to the final section of the final verse today, we're left with one question. From where does true humility come? Jonathan Edwards, who was one of Pastor Jamie's favorite theologians, thought that in order to truly understand something, the best place to go is where we find its truest and purest representation. The thing that we're looking for is humility, and the truest and best representation of it is obviously found in Jesus. We find this following passage in Philippians chapter 2. So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, Any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being full of cord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit. But in humility count others as more significant than yourselves. Let each not look to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Having this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, Every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. This is all that Paul, and through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit and Jesus, is asking of us. Just be as humble as Jesus. You want a unity in the church? Love Jesus. Love like Jesus. You want to mend the fractiousness of your marriage? Have the same level of humility as the God-man emptied as the God-man who emptied himself of his divine prerogatives and become a servant. That's all the scripture asks of us. But this passage is so much more than just Jesus is our example. If you continue to the next verse, we read this. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Here's the important part. For it is God who works in you. Both to will, both to work will and to work for his good pleasure. Throughout the chapter of throughout the following chapters of Philippians, Paul instructs them to not put no confidence in their flesh and the things that they do, and to know that the righteousness that they possess is not from following the law, but it is a gift from faith in Jesus. So how do we have the same mind as in Christ? I think it all comes down to seeing knowing and understanding who Jesus is. The one who humbled himself has been exalted. This is what the Holy Spirit does in us through sanctification. He shows us Christ and conforms us to that. There is a consistent pattern in the Old Testament. When somebody is presented with the glory and majesty of God, they are left unchanged. Isaiah proclaims woes on himself and in the people when he sees a vision of the heavenly throne room. Habakkuk says, I hear and my body trembles. My lips quiver at the sound. Rottenness enters my bones. My legs tremble beneath me. Moses is required to cover his face because of the radiance after seeing the receding glory of God. And God warned him that if he saw him in full, in full he would die. Even in the New Testament, with the disciples, when they catch a glimpse of, who, of the glory of Jesus, they are left terrified. It is in these moments that we see the root to true humility. After seeing just the sliver of who God is, Isaiah declares that he is undone, which literally means coming apart at the seams. As Jesus grows greater in our understanding, the only response is humility. It's like when Lucy saw Aslan for the first time, when she went to Narnia for the for the second trip. She says, Aslan, have you grown? And he replied, no, but you have. And as you grow, I will appear bigger to you. Now, there is an irony in all of this, isn't there? The more humble someone is, the less interested they are in being exalted. They will more and more truly say with John the Baptist, "I must, he must increase and I must decrease. And for small group, this past Friday night, we were finishing a study through the book of Revelation. And for our last time in the study, we watched a message from Dr. Sam Storms at the 2003 Desiring God National Conference on Jonathan Edwards, where he spoke of joy's eternal increase. And he was walking through Jonathan Edwards' thought about the nature of heaven. And one thing that stood out to me in the talk was when he mentioned that in heaven, we will not all be equal or at the same level of understanding. But throughout the ages of eternal rest, we will continually be growing and changing and learning into the, of the infinite majesty of God. But here's the beautiful thing. In that blessed state of lacklessness, when we are in awe of who God is, we will not be jealous or frustrated or envious of those who are further along, that will actually be a part of our ever-expanding joy in God. We will have joy in seeing the glory of God being experienced and enjoyed by others. And those who are further along will never look down on those coming behind because the greater love and joy that we have for Christ in that place will translate into a deeper humility at the grandeur of God. It will be a place of ever-deepening humility and ever-expanding joy. That is the essence of the glorified state in the ages to come that is promised to those who humble themselves now. But what of this world? What of this age? This joy and humility is not reserved for the age to come. Its fullest expression may be. But this is what Paul is telling the Philippians. This is what Jesus is telling the Pharisees. Even in the already, in the day-to-day now, when we are being made and striving to enter into the narrow door that Jamie preached on the other Sunday, as we rest in the new identity granted to us by Christ, we do not have to strive to make a name for ourselves because a name has been granted to us and it is written on our forehead. As Revelation 14.1 says, true identity in Christ comes from seeing ourselves rightly and enjoying the grace of God in others. We can let go of the insecurities that drive us to self-seeking and pride and be secure in the one who will never lose us. We can remember that pride and self-promotion bring shame. So we look to Jesus who is perfectly humble and exalted over all, even now, to the glory of God the Father. Let's pray. Father God, our Lord Jesus Christ, you are the giver of all things that are good. And yet we are self-seeking. Yet we are jockeying for position. We in, we, in our pride, make less of you and more of us. Forgive us. We use others. We stand on their shoulders to achieve something. And then we take the credit. We misuse and abuse each other. To promote our own self-worth. When in reality... Our self-worth is wrapped up in the fact that we are bought with a price. The death of perfect humility of Christ on our behalf. Lord, forgive us for our pride. Grow in us an ever-expanding knowledge and understanding of you. Let our attention be directed toward exalting the Son and not ourselves. Forgive us that we don't see you for who you really are. Shake us to our core with your glory and create in us humility from which will come out unity built on something that will last and that is Christ. Lord, we thank you that you are a good God and that even now you are changing us into the image of your Son through the work of the Spirit. Lord, I pray that we would be tender to that work and we would be humble in recognizing that it is you who is working in us in eternal weight of glory. We are not even sanctified by ourselves, but it is you who sanctifies us through the Spirit. Therefore, we strive knowing that it is of you. Lord, we thank you. We thank you that Jesus is the one who humbled himself and has been exalted over all. So it is before his name that we cry. Lord, we thank you. And I pray. Amen. And if you could stand for the assurance of pardon this morning, which is going to be found in Isaiah chapter 43, verse 25. Hear the words of your heavenly Father over you. I... I am he who blots out your transgression for my sake, and I will not remember your sins.